Hardly Holy Podcast Arenas. What is going on? We're back with another one this week when I'm talking to my good friend Jacob Kashir. I met Jacob on a course recently in Dialogos with the Cognitive Science John Verveke and the head of the Circling Institute Guy Sengstock. And we were learning about types of transformative conversation, what's called Dialogos, which is literally just the Greek for conversation. Jacob is a conversational artist, podcast host, and the founder of Sense Space Hub, combining dialogue, meditation, and music for self-transcendence. He also offers coaching and one-to-one Dialogo sessions in which you can actually engage with the process with him and learn it firsthand, which I would highly recommend. Hopefully this podcast will give you a little bit of a taste of how it works. We talk about Dialogos. We talk about psychedelics, we talk about Terence McKenna, we talk about religion, we talk about growing up, we talk about the meaning crisis, about how we've found solutions to it, we talk about living in Berlin and drinking Sternbergs in the park in summer, and that Jacob has yet to experience that beautiful initiation to that wild place. So, without further ado, here's the podcast. Bo! <laughs> Welcome to the show, Jacob. Good to be here, Mahan. After some mild technical difficulties, we've actually managed to do it, which is good news. But um, so I suppose, yeah, my first question was, you know, how did you get into Dialogos? How did that start out for you? I think it honestly started out smoking weed in my bedroom and getting into really <laughs> deep conversations with a select group of friends um, whilst I was in university. So <laughs> yeah. shall I get delve I, further? I, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I mean, how much weight now? Um, yeah, well, that's actually, I mean, if I'm thinking about it myself in terms of like really intense conversations, probably had the most intense conversations at house parties at like six in the morning where people were just like, just completely engaged in what they were saying. And there was no like, you know, oh, I'm going to do this or I'm going to go here. It was very much present moment and very much about the person you're speaking to as well. I mean, maybe that's a, a university, I suppose you're meeting new people and sharing ideas. Was that something that kind of fueled it? Your, the university work you were doing? Totally. Yeah. Um, yeah, I was very interested in I don't know exactly how to boil it down, but I was interested in the relationship between the West and Islam as something both within and outside of the West. And so I kind of started out on a curious track with that during my first year of my history degree, uh, which was at Queen Mary in London. And I was also living in um, my land in East London, which is like a crazy ethnic mixture of yeah. like sort of the last standing cockneys of the east of actual east yeah. london and there's not many of them and then bangladeshis who came here in like the 70s 
and then Chinese international students and then me. <laughs> yeah, and then yeah, <laughs> German international students that are kind of, yeah, that sounds like a real kind of an interesting place for talking to people. Anyway, there's definitely a lot of influences there. It was a culture shock for me on some level because I grew up in a small town, Southwest England called Poole. Yeah. And right. yeah, I, I grew up on a, a sort of estate on the edge of that town. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. And how did you come to be in Berlin then? Is that something that just, you just moved to Berlin? I fell in love with a woman nice. Uh, nice. who I met in London at a Rebel Wisdom Summit a few years ago. No way. And um, we, she had also been interested in kind of the Jordan Peterson yeah. intellectual dark web stuff. And yeah. so was I. Yeah. And um, yeah, we ended up clicking a long time later and then fell in love and I moved out here. And yeah, yeah we got engaged about three weeks ago. So it's... Congratulations. Yeah, I saw that actually. That's really, man, that's amazing a huge kind of like what a what an exciting thing to be happening at a time where there's so much like you know bullshit. yeah <laughs> something good going on you know what i mean yeah um, i actually lived in berlin for two years and um, mm. i moved there from dublin um just because you can't after i finished uni similar kind of thing i mean in uni i studied philosophy and i studied economics so i was always like philosophizing about just annoying people just talking about it like all the time but um i kind of felt like after the three years like i'd done loads of theoretical stuff but like i was still a kid and i was still like mm -hmm. living the same life i had been living when i was 16 or 17 and there was no like people in ireland dublin really i'd say in the uk it's similar just tend to live at home and they don't really you go to uni and you don't move out and it's kind of you know you're still in your your parents house and you're like ah oh, fuck i'm gonna still a kid like but um so yeah. i moved to berlin to kind of you know experience the the adult life and to kind of i suppose find myself as a bit of a cliche but um to live out and to i suppose um take that next step in life mm. how do you find it as a place to live i always it's it's such a fascinating place to be i mean there's there's so many different things in it we could talk about, but what is yeah. interests you? I'm I'm also interested in like what was your dialogue with Berlin, having yeah. lived there for two years? Because <laughs> yeah. I feel like I've had a conversation with Berlin since I arrived, and it's been probably a year, three months, or something. Yeah. Um. Yeah, it was interesting for me because it was very tied up with the relationship and the future of the relationship and we kind of moved in together yeah in a pretty early stage so there was times when i was like sort of what the fuck am i doing yeah. in berlin and yeah, other new times country, new relationship new yeah so it, it was very psychedelic in that sense my perception of the place shifted mm. um now i've been here for over a year what to say I'm very conscientious of the profanity of modern architecture. And yeah. I also have a lot of interest in collective trauma. And so yeah. the two of those together is something that I experience very visually 
just walking around Berlin all the time. It's almost like schizoid in the way it's like, it's like different bits of different histories and cultures that have, <laughs> that are kind of embodied in the architecture, but also in like, I mean, it's such a strange place. I mean, me being an Irish guy living there and there's a lot of Irish people there, but like, I didn't meet that many German people. I mean, most of the people that I hung out with were all from like, they're from Israel and Estonia and Spain and France and Ireland wow. and England and like all these different kind of you were almost inhabiting this city that had so much history around it but it was all from expats or people immigrants that I was hanging around with the whole time so we're, it was always kind of like a big playground of kind of like all these different you know from history but also then like clubs and nightlife mm. and all that kind of stuff really old and new kind of clashing together in a Definitely. yeah very alive city i that's what i liked about it so much was that there was just it was inexhaustible really i thought so i arrived in summer of last year in between covid lockdowns yeah. when there was like a brief opening period yeah. and then there was sort of a closing yeah and so for me like my girlfriend's fiance has lived here for like five years. Mm. So she would constantly be telling me, oh, this is not like Berlin at all. This is not how it yeah. usually is. <laughs> yeah. But for me, that's the only experience that it was like for like the yeah. first 10, 11 months. That's so different so... because I mean, I, I mean, when I was there, it was, oh, obviously there's a very big contrast between the winter and the summer, like the winter being this like, barren wasteland of like minus 11 degrees <laughs> like i remember i lived in a house with no heating and i'd be wearing Fuck. like four or five jumpers in winter just like under a blanket because you couldn't it was just uh, like nothing i'd ever experienced but then the summer has been super hot and everybody's out in the park and trap tower or gorlitzer and you know there's music outside there's people dancing there's sternbergs there's it's like a, just a feast constantly um but you, I mean, if you haven't gotten to do that yet, it's such a, a weird time to be there, I suppose. I've gotten bits of that. Yeah. And I certainly appreciate the good side of Berlin too. Yeah. Mm. Like, you know, sunny days and people eating ice cream. Yeah. There's fucking tons of babies here. Like <laughs> yeah. everyone's having babies. I always um, thought it was a weird place to have babies and to have kids and stuff and like kind of uh but that's, I mean, that's kind of part of it because it has, it's, it can somehow house these different worlds, like mm. that a person can have a family and babies. And then there's like leather clad <laughs> dominatrixes walking <laughs> people down the street at like seven in the morning. You're like, how are these things, how does this work? <laughs> I don't, it's quite culturally, yeah. it's very, it's, it's just, yeah, it's got everything and it seems to work. Everything I mean. except for, a lot of unfettered nature inside the mm. city but that's yeah. a lot to ask of a city these days yeah i mean the parks and stuff they kind of hold it in but like yeah i know what you mean that it's quite like dense and how have you found i mean this is where you've started your dialogos practice and mm -hmm. has berlin have you found people more receptive there than maybe you would in england is there because people might be more in that meaningful space do you think it's a good place for dialogos is there is there stuff happening there? There's definitely stuff happening in Germany. There is um, a team, a Dr. Thomas Steininger and an American woman that he works with, and they do an emergent, they've been doing emergent dialogue in Germany 
in German for several years. Yeah. Um, but for me in Berlin, it definitely has felt like I sort of uh, would have relationships with people that weren't necessarily lasting and giving fruition. Mm-hmm. And I've developed a lot of, like, apart from my girlfriend who I live with, many of the strongest relationships I've developed in the last year or two years have been somehow yeah. digitally mediated. Yeah. Um, and also happen to converge on Dialogos as well. Mm. So, yeah, it's been, it's been something that sort of led me to find lots of really sort of serendipitously well-connecting relationships with people where, you know, maybe people from religious backgrounds who are still like wrestling with that and also just the process of becoming embodied and grappling with the world as a young man i think like all of that stuff and has flowed in to these conversations where it's very much like bridging the contextual emotional embodied with the metaphysical intellectual um you know large meta sort of yeah i think you touched on it there i was thinking that like i mean the Something I found in Berlin was the anomie of the place, to use a, a mm. outrageous word, but the kind of that there was lo- there's so many people that it's very hard to form lasting connections. And a lot of time people are coming and going and like you could be best friends with hanging out with somebody, but you won't even know their last name and then they'll just disappear. And there's this kind of like <laughs> constant <laughs> shopping and shit. like there's no it's very it's quite fast paced and maybe big cities are like that, but. Um, it's interesting that you, you've touched on the Dialogos as making those connections as something that has allowed you, even in the pandemic, I suppose. And would these people be in Berlin or would they be all over the world? Um, all over. Yeah, California and yeah. the UK, mostly. Yeah. And do you find they're sustaining relationships? I mean, is it something, are these digital relationships, you know, a good substitute for the real life stuff mm. as well i i think it's <laughs> it's becoming more and more real life for me yeah. like there's definitely a time when it wasn't but gradually like the more i've sort of sought to bring this stuff out into my material world um yeah and sought to sort of allow some of those friendships to become collaborations in different ways then it feels like it's become real and it is actually sort of happening. Um, But yeah, I think there is a distinction in friendship or relationship between those ones that are sort of once every month or once every several months Mm. or once every year you have a conversation with somebody and it's like you get this awesome comparison point of not having seen each other for three months so if you've been on a transformational process and going up down up down when they see you it's very much reflected back oh like you are changing and you're getting closer to your goals and all of that um but i've definitely lacked those like day-to-day bros friendship group of just like hanging out 
because it's been very transient and so it's, yeah. but i you know I have a great exactly time with my girlfriend so we yeah. we I make our own world exactly like that as well man where it was very hard to form like close-knit relationships in a way maybe because it is that kind of and I, i'm sure it is possible i mean i have friends that have lived over there for many years um and maybe it's just part of growing up as well and leaving people behind but um something that you touched on there which was the the growth from dialogos the kind of like the transformational aspect because we did the dialogos course together with john verveke and guy sangstock um mixing the circling together with mm-hmm. dialogos um to kind of create this practice uh, for self-transcendence and self-development and that kind of stuck out to me that john had said a thing where you've really changed when people say to you hey you've changed it's not just when you <laughs> think like you're like oh i figured out all this stuff and you're like I, I know all these things now like when you leave university and you're like i've got all this stuff in my brain but he <laughs> actually goes no there's something different about you you're kind of like doing things this way is that something you you notice with d logos is that something that sticks out to you hmm i guess yeah in the context of this question dialogos is kind of um it's like a tool or practice that sort of binds together a lot of other processes that are going on so um yeah i would say the growth process is kind of going on outside of dialogos um in life you know and working through the difficulties and for me coming out of a relationship with a lot of trauma and then going through a lengthy period of of integrating that that was something that really did change me Mm. in tandem with exploring psychedelics in tandem with developing a very deep relationship with nature um and practicing like for pasta meditation and doing yoga and yeah all those things together did have changed me but yeah i'd say it, it's maybe only now or in the near future that people are like clocking that there's definitely <laughs> yeah, like a lag on, on recognition yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it's an interesting thing though because sometimes you can feel like you have changed or you have kind of I mean, a lot of what I write about is change and personal development and, you know, what that means because there's such a big industry around it and everybody's trying to do it and everybody's trying to be the thing and the next big thing. And you kind of wonder, like, what's the end goal? What's, what does the transformation look like? You know, where? Because there, there doesn't seem to be a fixed point, but you can point it out. You can go, oh, yeah, you're kind of like you're getting towards that thing a little bit more we can't describe it i wonder does dialogos give us a way of kind of tapping into that that transformational force perhaps yeah i think so i think it's it brings you to a horizon of knowing effectively (laughs) And wherever you are in your journey of self-growth and transcendence, there will always be a horizon. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's like your dialogue with that horizon, I suppose. Mm. The horizon Um, is a good metaphor. I like that. Like the edge of the known and the unknown. You know, Peterson talks about that, like the the 
place of meaning being the edge of what you know where you meet the unknown and then that's like you know the zone of proximal development and that's where you got to be and that's what he says about conversation as well is that in a really good conversation you're at that edge you know where you're like trying to push further all of the time into the kind of the uncertain um is there any practices that you use when you do dialogos to try and get there do you just is there you know what's your compass or do yeah you think i think in answering the question i would also like speak to the directedness of the question mm. um and you know why this why this not an interview why you just in my practicing with me one-to-one my response would probably be to orient more towards a letting go of any set intention Mm. and that's obviously connected with a lot of sort of buddhist meditation and also psychedelic yeah experience like in both of those contexts there's a deep emphasis on the letting go yeah or maybe like the breathing out um yeah and so i often will sort of break up the conversation mm-hmm. with the meditation um but then also like in the context like it doesn't actually have to be always oh, stop and have a 10 minute meditation now yeah. it can just be a shift in tonality mm. which then um intones the space the we space uh differently and it can how shift find the we space do you how would you describe that to somebody yeah we space is is a term from those uh the emergent dialogue team in germany that i talked about mm. for me collective mind is probably more where it's at mm. it's sort of an emergent collective mind yeah. that we connect with mm-hmm. with others it can also be called collective intelligence but for me a sense of a mind that gradually sort of gathers mm-hmm. or a field um and it can have different qualities depending on who's participating how they're participating and like what moves are made in the conversation and all of that sort of transforms the background and is it related to distributed cognition kind of made me think of that there but in terms of i suppose the it being a kind of third force acting on the two people in the conversation i i like i thought about that in the course was a sense that when we were doing the fellowship and we were speaking with each other and you were trying to engage this kind of serendipity or this kind of where you felt like there was something else guiding the conversation it wasn't just your conscious intention being pushed onto it you were allowing kind of a sort of a serendipity to emerge and to to structure the conversation um is that anywhere is that just anywhere close to what you're thinking or absolutely (laughs) yeah 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 and just yeah with regards to like distributed cognition um there is a very strong like systems thinking, sense making um, influence on the language yep. and everything sort of, you know, to sort of pitch to 
fast-paced techie corporate life it, it becomes necessary to describe things in these really cool yes. sci-fi ways like just self-organizing collective intelligence and yes. yep. but um in the context of dialogos in the context of that move from like two individuals coming and then there's sort of a gathering together of um you know, the field that exists between those two. Mm. But then there is this third movement where the, the collective mind or the field takes on a, a momentum. And we could even say a telos or direction mm. of its own. Um, and that experience can be like many different threads from different parts of your life and mm. pieces of information that you know. It's as if the flow in the center between the participants kind of draws in things which um, correspond and connect with one another. And that they're drawn together in such a way that it allows you to process them or to kind of see connections between them. Um, I mean, it, it. I'm trying to think of what the the effect is in terms of when I was experiencing that, when we were doing the discussions um, almost similar to with psychedelics, which was a sense of a presence of something other than your own, maybe that whatever kind of, you know, it could be a, a religious argument or whatever, but I'm not really making any metaphysical argument. It's just a pure phenomenological experience of a force in the conversation other than your own will and the other person's will acting on it and that it's become involved in the conversation in a way and maybe i yeah i wonder if there's a, a part of the dialogos is going with that rather than going against it you know maybe that could be if you weren't aware of that you could shy away from that aspect of the conversation whereas the dialogos pushes you towards it do you think that is a fair assessment i i would say invite invites uh, toward um yeah. like i noticed that you used you described it as like there's kind of a force and then there's the two wills and then the force is somehow like conforming or something yeah. that wills we could shift that language in another way and um for me it's really a spirit yeah that's the word that's the word for me to describe what the logos is. It's a spirit and it's a really musical sort of event, yeah. um, <laughs> experience. Yeah. And I, I definitely be interested. I'm very interested in the connections with what occurs in psychedelic mystical experience and, um, interesting like that sense of an entity or an other is not one that i had right away hmm. when i was first exploring psychedelics with lsd um you know there was a, a sort of self-dissolution and deep insight into nature and it was a very perceptually time-shifting sort of experience mm -hmm. i'm very curious um it was only quite far into that journey mm. with psilocybin that I experienced, exactly I, was 
you know, the larger, like a very, very embodied sense of dissolution mm. rather than just a sort of cerebral. It was very much like mm. the hot body melt outwards. Um, and it's in the context of, of psilocybin that I've experienced a sense of like, oh, this, like, you know, Tim McKenna used to always talk about, yeah. you know, it sets the agenda. <laughs> like, this, like, yeah. you know, it's got a kind of sexual, like, erotic. Uh, <laughs> and that's something that has only begun to make sense to me very recently. That's something I completely with psilocybin was what I was going to say more so than I suppose it is a relatable experience in terms of the spirit or something that I guess, I mean, that seems to come down so much to the psychedelic experience, why it benefits people like so much of the, I think it's Roland Griffiths and his work and John Hopkins mm. has been the experience of that. There's another, you know, that there's something larger than yourself. Terence McKenna might have called it the vegetable mind or the, you know, the kind of this, uh, what was it? He said that we're trapped inside of a big work of art. <laughs> he called it like that this kind of, that there is another than this, this material interaction of bodies, you know, that there, and that you can phenomenologically experience that in a way reliably with these compounds. And that was kind of his argument was that the proof is in the pudding. You know, you can, take it and do it and then this is what happens but i think a lot of people are resistant to that so d logos maybe offers a way of doing that that's a bit more maybe closer to home for people that's fair. definitely yeah you're really you're just getting spot on with something that's very alive for me which is um that i've had the experience that the people with cancer getting the three, the four gram, 4.5 gram dose, I've had that magnitude of experience. Um, but the, the idea that psychedelics are going to spread, at least in the way that Terrence McKenna and people talked about at that time, I think is, not quite how it's going to go yeah that's um, it. and yeah, i think it's more like the people who do use psychedelics use it as medicine however you want to describe that sort of shamanic journey um those people then become free of a lot of blockages that are preventing them from becoming greater artistically creatively mm -hmm. the boundary dissolving quality of these substances tends to make connections between different paradigms of thought and experience that haven't yet been connected mm -hmm. um and i believe dialogos can have a very gentle solvent quality on the boundaries of human thought by bringing us into relationship with our own edge and combining meditation, combining um, a sort of free form journey that you go on and neither person knows 
where it's going to go and therein lies the recipe for its success as a dialogos and the transformative quality as well i suppose that's because the word i would have used to describe the course that we did and the type of conversation and the type of experience that it was was psychedelic i didn't really have another word to describe it just in the sense that it opened my mind up to possibilities that i wasn't aware of and that kind of that kind of experience blows apart your conceptual structure a bit it it shows you where you're kind of the boundaries of your known and unknown that we talk about and i think for a lot of people the, we become very submerged in the known and something like that can remind you that there is an unknown in the first place i think you can pretend the world is very very simple just by acting in accord with what you know as long as that works to a certain extent but i think things are breaking down a lot in our culture and are breaking down a lot in general so more and more people are being confronted with the bad side of the unknown rather than this more genteel adventurous side of it and so there's i guess what i'm arguing is that there's kind of a a solution of sorts in the dialogos the potential for that does yeah that make, does that seem equitable? yeah 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 um I'm, I'm noticing in myself as I'm listening and there's such a breadth of territory that there's almost like a relevance realization process where I'm trying to figure like, how do I best, because there's many different like forms that I could take depending on what I chose to speak about and how I chose to move. Um, and I don't really know like what the audience is for this yeah. as such. So. Yeah. Yeah, for me, I had to sort of just let go of that yep. and just engage with you and, and see where it goes. Um, see if we can get to that edge of where we kind of have to step over and kind of realize something slightly different. And I guess that's kind of maybe why I brought in the culture thing a little bit, because I suppose you've grown up in a culture similar to mine and perhaps felt the lack in it. I, I wonder, is that what has inspired you like it's inspired me? Yeah, I yeah, I appreciate the sense of like similarity of, of background connection here, mm. even though my accent and culturally I'm quite American. Um, I grew up in a very, very English family and on an estate and went to school yeah. and everybody was sort of lower middle class or middle class and, you know, kids would go to the town center after school and all of that sort of stuff. Yeah. And I saw the art project that you did, the estate. Yeah. And yeah, so I was kind of man. connecting exactly, with that. Exactly. But that type of lifestyle and the, yeah, I mean, what you touched on previously, the higher path. I mean, there's something about this type of conversation that's reminding people that there is a higher path because I don't think everybody is, a knows that or is encouraged towards it to say that you know we all have a right to pursue that higher path it's something actually that as a human individual is you really are important in regards to it i mean it doesn't happen unless you pursue it and i like the democratic aspect of dialogos which is that everyone can do it i mean you you it's not like uh a prerequisite to be a superstar or something it's you can you know it's available for everybody that wants to 
open up and to talk and to explore that kind of way. Yeah, it's it's at its at its best. I think it's a non-rivalrous sort of infinite game mm. in the same way that music, you know, with maybe with exception to some rap, generally that the enterprise of music making is like a collaboration, whether it's like a band or whether it's like, oh, you know, you don't need to compare two great artists because mm. it's like, no, we can just have more great artists and <laughs> yeah. that kind of thing. Um, And it depends, like, I get us, you know, listening to your essay on redemption and the meaning crisis, which I really enjoyed and has sort of inspired me to like, think maybe I could read some of my essays yeah. um, in that way. Yeah, I sort of connect with like, I feel like there is a very unique Irish contextual version of the meaning crisis. And there's sort of this very immediate, like, shift away from the Catholicism yeah. um, of the previous generation. And I've had a few Irish friends over the years and sort of got a sense for that. Mm. Um, and, they're, and they're trying to figure, figure out an answer to that. And just, like, there was so much awfulness and rigidity and oppression involved in the religious way of the previous generations. Um, and yet like the, the sort of monks and the, the whole longer lineage of Christianity in Ireland is pretty vast and significant. And then I don't know, there's probably some Celtic stuff before paganism. that. Yeah. Paganism. Well, I think we've kind of just gone back to paganism would be my kind of argument that uh, if you take away, that, I mean, I was raised completely secular. So I was, but I grew up in a parish. So I grew up around uh, like in a Catholic area, but without a religion, um, which made me really interested in this stuff. I was just like a rabid atheist, like so bad like would just Same. savage people all the time that was like i was so defensive and so like oh. but um, <laughs> just because it that became the religion i suppose that i was told like you get this belief and non-belief and you end up it's there's nothing different between a religion and just a value system and you need the argument that i made in that particular piece was that you need a value system in order to pay attention to things. You know, what's salient to you is what you find valuable. So what's salient stands out from the background. And we all have that, that kind of operating system. So it's about what's the best salience landscape. What's, how do you make it more sophisticated? And my argument is that religions and spiritualities are, and even things like virtue ethics or philosophies are ways of trying to civilize that process saying, look, you know, you might want this, but this is actually a better thing to want and give you an ability to negotiate between them because we don't actually have that naturally. I think we, that's a cultural device. And when we just work off pure biology, it's a kind of like hedonism or paganism. That's like the default. It was a Jonathan Haidt said, we're 
we're not scientific thinkers we're religious thinkers that can think scientifically you know it's something we develop through discipline but if you just take away all of that for everybody and we don't have a culture anymore people default and you end up with this weird kind of cultish thing going on with all these rival gangs basically of whose team are you on and everything gets it terence mckenna called it the balkanization of epistemology it was that sense making just is destroyed and everybody has this individual world that doesn't make sense with anybody else's and we're all like shattered glass trying to put it back together but yeah that's i don't know where it's going with that but that was kind of what that essay was about really that's very um prescient of terence mckenna to our yeah, current that was circumstance. in 1995 as well or something like that so he was ahead of the curve but it was something i've wondered about with people like mckenna and people like nietzsche um who was so prescient of trends mm. whether there isn't a kind of way in which these philosophers and mystics could get so deep into the present mm. that they would somehow become a part of the rhythm that was running from the past yeah. into the future yeah. and therefore they could kind of yeah see see larger trends and larger arcs playing out and that's something that um psychedelics definitely opened me up to but then like this more ongoing collective dialogue um wisdom like this emerging wisdom school yeah around dialogos and some other things that has really equipped me really well and like the conversations that i have had with guy and john and others you know only having one or two was still very very significant for me mm. i think getting to engage with somebody like that like i i receive a download if you will yeah of a wisdom and it's not necessarily a propositionally held thing mm. and i don't actually know what it is right away but it's something about like the way that they related to me mm. the way that i was disclosed in in the sense that they can see me in ways that i can't yet see myself mm. and um Yeah, it's, it's it's in the sense of value systems, I almost see this distinction between like the mystics, let's say, and the and the religious and the mystics are somehow going to the source of all value systems mm -hmm. and then like being conformed to that mm -hmm. and becoming more deeply participating with life in a way that is somehow wise as a consequence of their relationship to um god or divine unity or whatever through their understanding of that and then they can give it back to us in a sense i mean that, that's a kind of the stoic thing isn't it the sage and you do what you imitate the ideal sage in your own life and then that's how you cultivate wisdom through this kind of higher order kind of moral principle i suppose that you put above yourself and that we emulate that and and then that's how we learn it through kind of mimicry i suppose but 
Yeah, I guess I felt growing up that there was a lack of that. I think the internet has made it more possible to see guys like John and Guy and to meet yourself and to see Jordan Peterson, to see the whole meaningful space that's kind of, that is emerging it as a kind of counterculture to the counterculture. Um, so, so it's like, which is pretty cool, but that, that, that didn't really exist previous to like, you know, mid 2000s. I wonder, did you have these influences when you were before that? I mean, was there, you know, or is this kind of a digital thing? Is that what's driving the movement? Um, well, personally for me, I'll note that I felt very drawn to the counterculture from a young age. Growing up in England, I was always drawn to like that sort of late 60s time and the sort of cross-pollination and everything that was going on, the anti-war movement and psychedelics. and um, But... I think it's also important that my dad was kind of very Christian and a minister to a Christian community, mm. um, which was pretty like young, like a young Christian community. Mm -hmm. um, and so maybe for the first eight or nine years of my life, there was just this sort of community context. Mm relationally where my parents just had all these different friends who were people in their church um so and did you become secular after that i mean yeah yeah i i i think i was i really believed in some of the stuff that my dad was you know speaking to me as a child and like connecting me with and it was quite like fantastical like I really, when I was in like sixth, seventh grade, like I believed in these sort of realms of angels and demons. And yeah. I thought it would be very cool to be an exorcist when I grew up. And that uh, seemed like a badass kind of thing when I was, but um, yeah, my parents kind of withdrew from the church that they were involved in. So I wasn't involved in that. And then I was just involved with school. And the school was Catholic and we would go to the local church sometimes. And it was all of those elements that have left an entire generation bereft of and sort of in rejection of religion, yeah. uh, just an empty recapitulation of things that like, you know, the teachers think it would be a good idea to say it to the students, but don't themselves don't live it. Sure. And, um, yeah, there was there was just a sense like having come from a very unique Christian context at a young age and then being in that sort of school context, it was like I could see through the bullshit of yeah. it, it felt like. Um, yeah. And then gradually I did become like new atheist as I grew older. Yeah. Um, and then it probably wasn't until I first tripped acid that I began to like that just reintroduced the unknown mm. in such a big way. And then gradually that began to catalyze yeah. a growth process and realization. And like, you know, through the midst of that, seeing all these like shadows from the past and like integrating all of that. 
shadows in the past in the sense of your own shadows, your own kind of life, or the collective experience? I think f for me, there was a lot of emotions that were just held unconsciously. Mm. So it's like my personality rested upon something and then underneath it was this whole body of, mm. of stuff that I hadn't confronted, you know, just like growing up in an English family and mm -hmm. all of the emotional trauma that comes from a culture of, of the first world war and the second world war, like literally just having happened. And that was like two generations ago. Mm -hmm. And they sort of came back into a very mm -hmm. repressed and very sort of class differentiated culture. Mm -hmm. And so I'm like, I see myself as sort of the descendant in a way of that yeah. and industrialization and all of those yeah. things. And so when I was tripping acid, it felt like I wasn't just dissolving my, um, my disembodiment and my cutoff for mystery. It was also like, oh, there's many layers yeah. in the code that have to be sort of reconnected That's with fucking fascinating man like in the sense that i've always thought that that like as an individual you're also like an emblem of your culture that you grow up in so a lot of times people say you know through activism you should change the culture and stuff but you're also a unit of culture in that way i mean you're shaped by the forces that created it like in my case as well like i have a i live in the north of ireland and a lot of my background is from belfast and things like that so there's a lot of you know difficulties there from the troubles in the 70s and I guess everybody has that because your parents grow up with their parents and they grow up with their parents and it's flawed people all the way down. So you kind of inherit a lot of stuff, a lot of wisdom and a lot of bad stuff as well. And then kind of trying to put that together into, you know, to make sense of it in your own personality. I think also because our generation ha don't have that structure anymore, we've kind of had to, that process of making yourself is also making that structure. Does that make any sense? If like you don't have that cultural backdrop, you don't have the luxury of just being Catholic or being against Catholicism. We're kind of having to do another thing, I think. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, like that's spot having, on. We got to do something else. Like it's kind of our time to do that other thing. But I guess that's maybe yeah. trying to hit on. And I think in order to do that, there's like a there's kind of a you have to almost dwell in the reality of like what that must have been like for your ancestors and connect with that um to, to, to sort of bring it through to this sort of question of the world right now and the incapacity to make sense of it and um respond to it well and the exponentiality of change I think that those layers of disconnection from the past cut us off from our bodies and in doing so from our senses and from our actual felt relationship to complexity. Mm -hmm. And so we actually only encounter complexity in a phenomenological experiential way. Mm -hmm. um, and this, I think, begins to account for why there's such a alienation from nature 
and just like not our, our own nature as well i mean not just the the forest but also our own you know who we are and our our drives and our our heritage i suppose as mammals and as children and this kind of alienation from the past and our culture that's something which i felt very keenly growing up was just uh like no foundation like not you know if you reject all of the past and all of the culture as corrupt and tyrannical and everything you don't stand on anything you're kind of like you're like you've sawn off the branch you're sitting on so you're it's kind of it's it's not a position it's not somewhere you can start from i think so that dealing with the past is kind of for me the beginning of living now it's the beginning of actually you know reforming mm-hmm. yourself yeah that's the way i think i mean that's something really like i don't know maybe it's for millennials or other ones but it's every generation probably has issues with the generation before them and with the other ones in the context but i think in the 2000s and this kind of 21st century it's it's really weird like there isn't a um there's no set menu to eat from so we're all having to kind of become chefs and we're all kind of shit at it <laughs> we need a bit more like collective sense making um, collective cooking i don't know if that metaphor works but yeah something about needing tastes as well <laughs> yeah. um and nutrition and nutrition yeah try and thread that that um that not being with the past fully shows up as like the politics of rejection or resentment and ultimately as a feeling and as a psychic state that is kind of stuck and it's not it's not going to be able to flow and change and it's certainly not going to survive a high dose of psychedelics either um yeah and that's that's something that I had definitely sensed in like Irish culture in relationship to me as an Englishman in the past, I did tune into this sense of like, Oh, like I, the Irish person am the resentful victim and you are the culture of oppression, yeah. <laughs> but actually, yeah. you know, I see being work like the paradigm of being working class in English is mm. just as oppressive as any other. Yeah any other kind of system if you you come to i mean if you come to believe those because i mean in part there obviously is truth about that in in terms of class struggles and the oppression of ireland by england and colonialism and stuff but if you come to identify yourself by that you end up in a very weird psychological position because you're not really equivalent to that struggle you know what i mean something with irish nationalism a lot all right you can end up with you reject everything that's English-like. So you reject authority, you reject, you know, discipline, you reject order, you'll kind of fall into more this kind of rebellious role. And in a sense, you pigeonhole yourself. Because, I mean, while these things are real historical events, they're not real historical events to us all the time. You might experience them, but they're also representations of something. You're kind of... Mm. You know, if you take them into yourself and you act from them, it'll give you a type of personality. It'll shape your character in a way. And so 
I think these competing stories that we have in the culture wars and things like that have left everybody scrambling for something like that because it makes sense of who you are now. You know what I mean? If I define myself as an Irish person, as oppressed by the English and everything, that sets goals for me. That tells me how to act. That tells me who I am in, and my values and everything. It allows me to orient myself, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's the right way of orienting myself. And that's kind of the argument, I think. You know, what is the right way of, you know, what's the right story? Which one makes sense? And we have this huge competition going on between them. Yeah, my answer is which one makes music. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> on some level. But yeah, music in the sense of harmony. I mean, mm. which one, which one causes endless violence and chaos, and which one actually creates homeostasis and something we can live in? That's kind of the the test, isn't it? And I suppose in my own life, I feel like I've found that because I've lived the '70s counterculture thing partying doing drugs fuck everybody i'm an atheist you know this is all bullshit uh, science is right everybody's an idiot but it didn't work and it didn't make me you know i didn't feel aligned with myself or with uh i didn't feel like i was in the right place with it i mean a lot of causes a lot of negative emotions and a lot of conflict and i guess i wonder if we can find the ideal again Yeah, you spoke to like a a wisdom path earlier, and I wanted to s sort of suggest that that path is so um, individual in a certain way to each of us yeah. um, and contextual as well, that it's less about something that we can write down on Ten Commandments or... Yeah something like that and it's more an actual felt sense of alignment or flow mm. or musicality because that's what it's become yeah. for me is like with yeah. more not knowing mm. there has to be more flowing yeah <laughs> <laughs> that makes a lot of sense and I, i'd heard john verveghi say before like if you can tell how much meaning a person has in their life by how much flow they have like how much flow state they're experiencing that there's a a direct correlation between being at the edge of your known and your experience of meaning and the flow state that that's a way of you know yeah and it's also i think the for me it's been one of the the healing things of that process of self-integration uh is doing things that felt like they got me in flow, mm. whether it was cannabis and nature, cannabis yoga, or, yeah. um, yeah, when I came across Dialogos, that was like, sick, this is a flow inducing participatory thing that I just yeah. love to watch. And I love being the, the fourth wall yeah. on Guy and John and Jordan Hall and all of and Christopher. Mm. So, yeah, it's it's like an honor for me to get to be able to talk to people like that. And that's that was sort of my highest aspiration setting out with the podcast is like, I want to live a life where I get to speak with the most interesting people. Yeah. Um, but consequentially, you have to become an interesting person as well. And <laughs> yeah. you have to become 
more uh, engaging and more able to like, yeah, it's that sort of not knowing in relationship to complexity that would allow you to jump on with somebody you've never met yeah. and just go for it and gradually get a sense for each other in dialogue. And then you can actually sort of do a work. Like we are kind of, we've been creating something yeah. here gradually as we've explored. And that you can kind of, the willingness to do that, I suppose, it requires probably a journey in itself as well. I don't know if that would be, I know a long time ago in my life, I wouldn't have had perhaps the confidence or the, even be at the developmental stage to do something like this, where you can jump into the conversation. So I think I suppose for podcasts and things like that, it serves as an example for people to be like, hey, you know, anybody can do it. You just have to be brave and you got to give it a shot and talk to strangers on the internet, you know, like that that's a, actually a good thing to do in a weird way. But um, so, I mean, what we've kind of been dancing around here, what, you know, what I was really interested in at the beginning is Dialogos as an answer to the meaning crisis, as an answer to the, you know, the cultural conflict, not as an answer answer where you say, this is the answer, but as a way of generating answers as a, a method rather than a, you know, a package. Um, and have you seen that in your clients that you work with? I mean, does it decrease this anomie? Is it something that offers a solution to it? Yeah, <laughs> it does for me. Yeah. It, it has for the people that I've been in like long-term dialogue relationships with. Um, uh, it, it, it's astonishing, but you keep coming back and the reservoir is always full in a certain way. And so it's something nourishing that I can keep coming back to and yeah, connects me with a felt sense of meaning, like a felt sense yeah. of alignment. Mm -hmm. And it's less that it, I mean, it is incredibly generative. Like I was saying that sort of solvency and, and bringing together things that haven't been brought together before mm -hmm. is, is so you're sort of playing with and participating in the primordial creative forces of life in a dialogos. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, but I actually think it's more about your instrument in, in relationship with your life. And so, uh, so it, it creates a greater conformity or like a, you, you become more tuned as an instrument in your process of, you know, paying attention to your life and responding to relationships and, and how quickly do you move out of being like in a shit state or in a depressive state or in an anxious state or in a state of really like limiting beliefs and self-indulgent doubts how quickly can you move out of that and back into alignment that's sort of the lift question for me right now and i, I feel like i focus much more on on alignment than i do on the actual products and yep. what flows out of that and that you kind of learn that's really exactly what i'm thinking even in terms of doing the podcast and the type of conversations that i have 
this last month not doing it, I've really missed it. And I felt like it's such a tool for attunement, for that feeling of connection with one person. And then that you take that out into the rest of your life, that you walk around with it in a sense. And it helps you, it, it tunes you up to things that otherwise you just kind of drift by. And maybe if you haven't had that experience, similar to psychedelics, I suppose, you don't really know what that means. You know, you have to kind of go through it in order to have context. Yeah, I've come out of Dialogos calls and like produced songs like immediately after I've come out and like gone immediately into like confronting some like really challenging emotional complex issue that someone's having and just being in like being with that flow um not having to totally think about it 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 is just a fording of a capacity for me to respond to life that is far superior than my own capacities and that it's a way that reliably does it as well even though there's no like way to do it you can still kind of aim at that outcome i suppose it it comes even though there's no like recipe for this you say this and you do this and then you move like this and that does this and it can still be done reliably in a sense which is kind of like the psychedelic experience where it's always different and it always has the other context but it reliably produces these changes in your who you are yeah yeah (laughs) i can't say of yeah every single trip for me has been Mm. transformative in some way it always is, but you don't necessarily know right away because it's sort of a, a it's, it feels like it happens sort of at the deeper levels of your conscious being. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, gradually what's on the surface will change over time. Yeah. Um, and do you Dialogos. Use, do you use psychedelics for Dialogos? Is that something that you, or is it just in the philosophy of it? Is it... I have not. Um, yeah, I would not recommend it. Mm. Uh, certainly not on Zoom anyway. Um, because I don't know if I could type. It would be very difficult. Psychedelic trips are very energetically costly. And so it's yeah. best to sort of keep a more enclosed set and setting with whoever I'm with and all of that. But they have 100% transformed me and therefore transformed the way that I participate in dialogue. Um, I did sort of have some rituals when I started out for sense space, like I would always smoke some cannabis, go out into nature and go like walking in nature. And that was sort of like my way of getting the best clear mind where I wasn't, or to the least extent possible was not so nervous and not like Mm -hmm. premeditating what was going to happen. Cause my monologic mind would be like yep. planning the conversation and like playing out. Yep. And so just getting back to that, like not knowing direct experience mm-hmm. and sort of getting restful in that mm-hmm. is my best sort of preparatory recipe. That just reminded me so much of like the thing that I noticed in the course a lot was that I shifted my mindset from like prepared speech where like, this is the speech that I'm giving, you know, I know the, or I'm, I have an outcome for this talk to just being like, I, the way I thought about it was like, 
being empty, listening, and then go. Like it was just like no no outcome. I'm not thinking about what I want to try and produce or anything. Um, it's just a process of emptying, feeling, and then speaking. Like it wasn't, there was no direct, you know, I wasn't trying to pro- get to a particular goal or a particular outcome. And that for me was very, number one, very different to normal speech, I would say, a lot of the time. You can get caught very much in like trying to navigate the world and get your way and kind of speak to people in an instrumental way. So this kind of other mode of communicating is, I think, a lot more meaningful and a lot more risky, maybe. I suppose it has a very, that's probably the anxiety of it, is that it's very uncontrollable. Like you have to say the things that bubble up and the images and be very willing to be authentic. Yeah. Yeah. That's very well put. Um, it's a creative act of speech when you get to that edge and you don't know what you're going to say next. Mm. It's very much the same to me as picking up a guitar and just starting playing around and then sort of tuning yourself into a rhythm as you go. Mm. Um, and I sort of discovered music making around, you know, during the time that I was practicing Dialogos as well. So maybe they sort of intermesh, but it's, uh, it's, you know, the foundation of psychoanalysis with Jung and Freud was all about getting people to talk in free association. And in so doing, the analyst could sort of understand the mind and get a sense for the patterns of the mind and all of this stuff. And so there is a vulnerability to it because you are disclosing the style of your mind, maybe rather than the content, like the style is going to come through. Um, And you're giving up the filter in a way as well. I mean, you're kind of giving up thinking of that Freudian sensor that says, you know, don't do that, do this, the superego kind of thing. You're kind of saying, we're going to take that off for a while and see what happens, which is pretty radical, I suppose. It's fucking awesome. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, when I started out, there were these milestones of like talking about pornography addiction, talking about my experience with psychedelics. And each time that was like, oh, this huge thing. And I thought the world would be up in arms or something. (laughs) But actually each time near to nothing happened, and I had just like made myself a little more myself by connecting what's inside with the outside world. Yeah. That has made me more present just through the process of doing that over time. And that there's something so powerful about that saying those things that you don't usually say or something, something that I really noticed when we did the D logos thing when I was in my group and we were kind of doing the fellowship and you'd take turns to each say something and even just describing just the like when somebody would say something the exact image or feeling that that gave to me without any editing of any sort or any like oh what will this what will they think about this or what will this do like will they all just go ah fuck you get out of here man that's terrible what are you doing and saying and just relaying that information and the excitement that that creates because everybody goes holy shit that's actually what's going on inside of you and then they go here's what's actually going on inside of me 
and you go holy shit that made me go like this and you have this like back and forth and it's it's just like it's so nourishing it's so but so absent most of the time i mean in terms of you know there's a lot of formality in day-to-day life i think that this kind of strips away and gets you in contact with that raw material yeah i think it's a, it really has that live play quality to it yeah. and it's like i've been having a lot of insights recently about sort of the idea of performance mm. and authenticity is like they're often held up in our culture to be separate yeah and bringing those two together mm. in the context of dialogos something that christopher mastro pietro said is that we don't speak the truth we perform what's true and so like in order to become better instruments in the logos, we have to more, more truly perform what's true for us. And yeah, that is just doing that thing of like, oh, this is actually what's coming up for me yeah. in this moment and not giving a fuck about anything apart from just playing in this self-aware space with someone that can actually just like really stir the pot, you know? Like if you do that and then it corresponds with something else, you both, you both might discover something. Um, also like serious, like that is sort of the transformational edge space in many ways. Yeah, it just reminded me of the Jordan Peterson was a courageous truth in the service of love. And that there's this, the, the reason you don't speak the truth is because the truth changes everything it just like if you were to say exactly what's going on things are going to be different you can't keep the status quo in a sense if you're just because you don't know what's going to happen if you just say exactly what that is and the fact that dialogos creates a space where that can occur kind of gives you that opportunity again and that you can integrate into your own life and integrate into other areas and yet to perform truly in the sense of the truth pretty cool yeah there's a real like vastness of potential Mm. for me a new mode of being as well is what came up for me because i've been searching for that a new mode of being in the sense that i felt like i'd kind of run out or during the pandemic i kind of burned out and i was really like just felt the need for transformation i went back to counseling and started doing psychotherapy and and those types of conversations are very much that very similar to that, I suppose, in a one-sided sense, but also, I suppose, in a, a dialogical setting, but that it offers a new mode of being that's not focused on, you know, I hate the word, but I suppose productivity or something like that, but that it's more about being and that that has something to do with being. I don't know if I've made the connection, but totally. And I think like even to distinguish the therapy versus dialogos a little more, um, like in the context of therapy, you can, people can go and they can share a lot with somebody who's going to sort of listen and observe and then sort of make their own map of what's going on, but they're not necessarily sharing that. And there's a kind of analytical boundary. Um, And so the effect of that can be that the person who's sharing and like getting all their stuff out isn't actually learning 
how to relate well with another human being through the relationship with the therapist, Mm -hmm. because that relationship can be a bit of um, an aberration. And also in the context of the broader scheme of things, it's like a very recent thing that's been stacked on secular culture, but actually is, you know, the, the ground of interpersonal transformation, I think has to be connected with metaphysics and all of that that's really interesting connecting it with the secular thing because in a sense i feel like dialogos does democratize that kind of transformational ability and conversation which has become very focused in psychology i think a lot of the psychology is picking up the slack for a lot of religious structures that have fallen apart even the idea of confession i mean it's kind of the same thing right yeah being truthful somewhere deeply deeply similar isn't it yeah and that there's a a kind of cathartic element to it that you have to go and you know say what's going wrong and speak it out loud and that but i like the idea of that that can be done more effectively that there isn't a monopoly on it you know what i mean in one particular profession that that's actually a human thing which i think is what Jung gets at a lot and he says you know a lot of it a lot of psychotherapy could be removed by moral courage and by you know caring and that it's something we could like i I don't think it's reasonable for absolutely everybody to be in therapy i mean it might be a good thing but surely there needs to be some sort of social thing that picks up the slack on that you know why do we all feel so disconnected that that's how we have to connect that's how where we have to go feels um feels like it's filling a void yeah and and not only a void but generations of dysfunction and (laughs) like not even having the language or the context to make sense of any of that and so it it is a peer-to-peer cultural technology um and it's very much of the you know where two or more are gathered in my name i am with them kind of thing except you swap out the holy spirit for the spirit of the logos um that's a very very different paradigm of understanding to the paradigm of, of of 20th century scientific rationalist psychotherapy yeah and also i mean that the psychotherapy is tapping into that something that it does always seem like that it's through psychotherapy that ancient wisdom and um religion religious ideas will make their way back into the mainstream like it's through psychology because we realize that those things play such a key role in what we define as mental health that there isn't really i mean mental health is an ideal I always wonder about that where it's like you know who is the mentally healthy person who is the most mentally healthy you know what's like what am i aspiring to when i'm aspiring to be mental mentally healthy <laughs> there's a kind of a yeah like, well that's not a scientific ideal it's not a scientific definition so you're kind of left with well you know it's going to end up rebuilding some sort of religious structure because you're positing a higher order aim so i don't know i guess 
I feel like that's kind of the transformation that's coming about. And you see it with guys like John Verveke, obviously cognitive scientist involved in psychology, Jordan Peterson, psychologist, Jung, uh, a lot of guys that in that tradition see the ancient wisdom as the ultimate psychology. That it, you know, it, it, it's a technology for creating people that are well situated in life, if used properly. I think I could rift for another hour on the archaic, <laughs> the archaic revival. And <laughs> well, that's kind of what I'm getting at. So Terence McKenna, <laughs> transcendental hyperobject, the end of time. <laughs> Definitely have engaged a lot with that stuff. And mm. I like to bring in that really, some of McKenna's really radical ideas and yeah. put them together with this more well-structured mm. sense of the meaning crisis. and. But that's what I think is happening a lot. I mean, there's a repatriation of old ideas and that have been tested and true, like stoicism is a great example of that that's come back and that's super popular in like tech spaces and everything because it works and the ideas work. But I feel like if you take self-improvement seriously enough, eventually you'll get to the idea of God and the logos and all of this stuff because it's it's about being the best person that you can be morally or in terms of, you know, that's the question like how do you be a good person and so the self-improvement and all that kind of sector stuff will end up there if you really take it you know if you push it to its extreme maybe like we have with psychedelics and in our own life you kind of come full circle and you got to go well clearly they were onto something <laughs> kind of what i think yeah and i guess that uh... There is a, there's a combination here that I want to bring together is the sense of accessing the ancient wisdom in the context of the texts and all of that, um, and the practices, but there is also a sense in which we tap into and participate with an originary wisdom that is very much present. It's, you know, I believe it's in a sense like in our DNA, mm. it's, it's deep, deeply embedded in the human being to be able to attune to rhythm and attune to beauty mm. in the world and, um, to have this kind of communing with others and to getting into this higher order coherence together and feeling, you know, the ecstasy and the rest and the insight and everything that can flow through that. And so we have to do both. And I think that's what John and his whole project is, is plugging in all that material and all the footnotes and all the references and plugging it into a dialogos. Yeah. And yeah, ultimately it's about each of us. And creating the language, I suppose, to to fit it into our worldview so we can understand it. But I agree 100% with what you're saying in that the wisdom is, in some sense, already, you know, it's there. It's I think that's why those ancient wisdom are the ones that do survive, that do live, is because it taps into something universal. It's not something that's just like disembodied and theoretical. It's something very much to do with who we are, our biological evolved nature and our 
social, cultural, psychological nature that there's, there is a sort of, you know, a way of doing it or that it's kind of, you know, that we've observed ourselves for long enough and said, look, this is kind of how we work. This is it, these are the things we desire. These are the things that, you know, we avoid, but we should confront. And these are kind of our rhythms that carry our patterns that come out and then we encode them. And so having the, the ability to understand that is also about understanding yourself in that the, the way of the, that you are already are these things like what we talked about with the intergenerational trauma. I mean, you are, we are each a product of the past of all these ideas of all these things that exist. And um, there's no way of separating ourselves from it. And I don't think we will. So maybe, you know, it's time to reintegrate it, to understand it um, and to live it. Yeah, that feels, yeah, <laughs> very deeply at the heart of my life project and what I've sought to do with my ideas is to, to give image and metaphor and a sense of like that movement, you know, for me, branching patterns and trees have mm -hmm. gone a lot into my work and my life um and very much of that spirit of reconnecting our ideas with our experience um that sense of getting rooted down into the roots of yourself you know where you grew up but also your collective soil and understanding that collective cultural ground and getting rooted in it rather than just being sort of unconsciously blind on top of it once you root you're going to unleash a lot of emotional energy and <laughs> cry for a long time. And yeah. then it comes through um, and branches outward. And we as human beings tripping through time get to sort of be that channel through which the past and the future meet. And then it really, you know, <laughs> it becomes about how well we can, like how well can we carry the tune and allow that to flow through. Um, because we're not ultimately in control. We've sort of woken up in the midst of this Shakespearean cosmic psychedelic trip through time. And <laughs> we have to just like realize that and yeah. and deeply participate with it and, and make it the best that we can. I think that's a good, pretty good place to finish it off but this has been incredible as as expected that it would be interesting but i think you've fairly blown my mind um, <laughs> what, what are you going to do next jacob and where can people find you if they want to do dialogos and watch your podcast and you know follow your journey yeah thank you um it's been a pleasure doing this conversation as well definitely like... we'll have to do it again i'm i'm sure we will I've known, I knew when I found you online that there was a lot of pieces to connect. Um, so yeah, people can find me at jacobkishia.com forward slash discover dialogos. And yeah, from my website, you'll find all my social media and, and that stuff. But yeah, this has been awesome. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for speaking to me and thank you for your time. And and yeah, you said what's next. Sorry, I was going to answer yeah. that question. Um, yeah, I'm 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 doing my practice. I'm doing my podcast. I'm 
starting my life engaged with my girlfriend and we're hoping to find time to make more music but um the project for me is is how do i become the instrument that can deliver dialogos to teams organizations um and larger contexts um and and also i think i'm i'm working on a sort of secret pet project of creating a quite unique dialogos immersion experience and trying to bring together like a you know justice league of interesting people who are like really flowing with it and then see what happens out of that and let that sort of be a a big generative container that sounds pretty damn cool i would definitely be interested in that um that's yeah wow so exciting stuff coming and i would encourage everybody that's listening or watching on video um to check out your work check out your podcast and to just experience the dialogos i mean it's it's something that i'm glad now that i've found it that i have and i think it's definitely the the way forward out of this cultural crisis i suspect and other things as well but that that's a good basis to start us off. So, Jacob, again, thank you. Thank you, Mahan. Oh, my goodness gracious, it's an outro. I hope you enjoyed that podcast with myself and Jacob Kashir. For more, you can find him at his website, and you can book one-to-one Dialogo sessions if you're interested in learning more about these ancient types of conversation and self-transcendence. As always, if you enjoy the podcast and you want to support us, just click that follow button on Spotify, or Apple, or subscribe on YouTube, and stay in touch. Um, This is what it's all about, really, building a community, having these types of conversations, and sharing these ideas. So I hope you enjoy. Have a good one.